Thank you for listening to the Grace Harvest Church podcast. For more information, go to graceharvestchurch.org. Well, my name is Noah. I'm um, one of the pastors here at the church, and um, I'm actually in charge of the youth ministry. Hey, yo. <laughs> and uh, I get the opportunity to be able to share a message today, which I am very, very excited to share with you guys. Um, I do see some new faces. If, if you're new, um, we just like to say welcome. Really, really glad that you're here. And you've probably already heard it like 3,000 times, but we would love to give you a free coffee. <laughs> uh, so please take advantage of that. And um, if you don't know me, come introduce yourself. I, I'd love to talk to you and just kind of meet new people. Um, the last few weeks, Pastor Doug has kind of walked us through a series called Supernatural. And um, we're going to continue that today. Why is it important for you, a believer in here, or a Christian in here, to know about the supernatural? Um, sometimes it's, it's a topic or a subject. Sometimes we, even myself, I get a little, like, sometimes nervous around because when we hear supernatural, we're like, oh, gosh, like, what's going to happen, you know? <laughs> or what are we going to talk about? What does that require from me? But I would maybe even start it. Or just even a base understanding is, if you're a Christian, the entirety of your faith is wrapped up in supernatural events. If you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, um, you believe in a guy that died and then came back. Supernatural. You believe in a guy that, before he died and came back, performed hundreds of miracles. Fed 5,000 people. Casted demons out. Laid his hands on the blind, on the sick, and miracles happened everywhere. You believe in even before Jesus, even before his birth, resurrection, burial. You believe in, in Moses. You believe in all these things were part in the Red Sea. Thousands of events through scripture, even after Jesus ascended into heaven. Even what um, Deline shared, supernatural. So your entire faith is wrapped up in supernatural things. And that supernatural isn't just in this book, but it's in the reality here now. And for you as a believer, you are to live and act in the supernatural. It's just supposed to happen and come out of you. It's not just for then, it's for now. It's for here and for now. And anyone that's seen a miracle in this room, say amen. amen. There you go, right? <laughs> because once you see something that you can't explain, that's in a supernatural event, Everything changes, right? <laughs> Everything changes. I have in my, by myself has prayed for healing, and I've been healed by myself, not at a church service. <laughs> I have watched miraculous things happen again and again and again, and it's all supernatural. You believe in the supernatural if you're a Christian. <laughs> Today, we're going to walk through another passage of Scripture. And Pastor Doug's hope and my hope too is that we would look at Scripture and we begin to extract principles out of it, particularly about the supernatural, and we begin to apply them into our regular and normal life. So this week we're going to talk about John 2. John chapter 2. It's called The Wedding at Cana. It is Jesus' first miracle of turning water into wine. So you want to toss up that verse for me, Edward? Man, our sound guys and media people, wow. Put your hands together for them. 
kind of a thankless job. <laughs> but man, they make everything go around. Thank you, Edward. Let's read this passage together, and then we'll dive into it line by line. It says this, On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. That's Mary. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, in a nice way, not in a mean way. When we hear that, we, it's, we always say it in a mean way. Pastor Doug talked about this two weeks ago. It's a sign of respect. So, woman, <laughs> what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to his servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, you know what that means, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Let's first look at uh, verse 1 and 2. So on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana at Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. In Scripture, we see time and time again, Jesus and his disciples being invited to things. We've seen Jesus having a reputation of not ruining a good time. Looking at some of you guys. Uh, Jesus celebrates and shares joy with us. Somewhere in Christendom or in the Christian church, there came out this like really stoic Jesus, that that was the only, like, the only person who he is. And I believe that Jesus is that, but he's a lot more. That Jesus celebrates with you and shares joys with you. Amen? Now, verse 3. Calamity happens. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Let's pause there. When we hear that thing, or maybe I hear it in 2021 as an American, I'm like, bummer, you know. <laughs> Sorry, you know. But we have to begin to read the Bible in such a way that we understand the cultural context and the significance of the passage. A wedding feast for Jewish people at the time lasted seven days. Seven days. And many, and there would be a ton of wedding at that at the wedding, and there would be a lot of drunk people. The responsibility of the host of the wedding was to have enough wine for the entire seven days. 
and they had a strategy with this. They would give the sober people good wine, and then when they got drunk, they'd give them bad wine. That's why the master of the house said that. He's like, why is this good wine at the end? So this is a party that is supposed to go on for seven days, a wedding celebration, and three days in, they're out of wine. Uh-oh. What does that even mean? In that time, think of yourself as in that time in a small village, a wedding's happening, you're invited, or you know about the wedding. To run out of wine or supplies at a wedding would be social and cultural disgrace. Literally, they would be the talk of the town and be like, man, did you hear that so-and-so? They didn't even have enough wine for their wedding. What the heck? They ran out, three, or they ran out only three days in? <sighs> Come on. That's a terrible wedding. And also, they, it would, they would even draw different, or even draw even it deeper, because of every male at the time was going through rabbinical school, meaning they trained to be a rabbi. So they had a lot of biblical knowledge inherently in their culture. And they would always draw these conclusions all the time. The meaning and the symbol for wine in scripture is joy. It's joy. And so they would draw the conclusion that if wine ran out, joy ran out. And joy ran out not just for the party or for the celebration, but joy ran out for this newly married couple. You're starting your marriage with no joy? You see, we have a big problem. Jesus and Mary were both at this wedding. So it's, it's kind of speculated that it was probably a family wedding of some sort. They were related some way. And Mary was probably, as a woman, was serving at that wedding or helping with the servants. And so that's why she knew instantly, wine's gone. <laughs> I checked the cellar, wine's gone. We have a big problem. Now, let's continue on to verse 4 and 5. Mary says, hey, the wine is gone. Says that to Jesus, you need to do something about it. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So we see that passage and we're like, this is, it's not derogatory. It's a sign of respect. But in Jewish culture, men would change how they speak to their mother in a moment. So an interaction would start between Jesus and his mom. And if he said, mother then he is showing that his position in this conversation in everything is a son and a mother talking. But they would do something different. Men would do this. If they addressed their mom as woman, which is not as a sign of respect, that means that right now I am not operating as your son. It's a difference. I'm operating as a man and you are a woman. And so when Jesus made this distinction, it's a cultural distinction. Where we wouldn't even understand that, but it was important. But Jesus even had a deeper meaning in it. He said, instead of saying, mother, what does this have to do with me? He said, woman. Because in the moment, he wasn't identifying with his humanity in Mary, but he was identifying with his identity and divinity in God. He said in this moment, in the moment, woman, that means I'm actually identifying with God in this moment and in this interaction. Because a miracle is about to happen. What does this have to do with me? My hour has not come. Mary was asking Jesus to do a miracle. Mary knew 
who Jesus was at this point, that it just wasn't her son, but he was the living God. She knew instinctually that he could do miracles and he could do something. So you could even sub this in as, as we ran out of wine, can you do something? It's like, Jesus, do the thing. <laughs> do the thing. I know you can do miracles. You're out of wine. Look, it's perfect timing. And so Mary is almost trying to even force this thing upon her son to do the thing. To make more wine. To perform a miracle. And we see an interesting thing Jesus say back to her. It's almost like a hesitation to perform the miracle. He goes, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not come. My hour has not come. There's a thought in studying this passage that came up of why Jesus was hesitant in that moment about making wine. For us, it's like not this big deal. But for him, I think it was because it put him on the road to the cross. That the moment that he started to perform miracles, he knew that could the conclusion of his life here on earth would be the cross. That we see that this in this brief moment of this phrase, my hour has not yet come, he is wrestling with his humanity and his divinity. Because Jesus was fully God and fully man. We see something similar happen in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus says to God, please let this cup pass before me. It's the same type of wrestling because Jesus knew, if I start this miracle, it's going to put me down a path that's going to end in the cross. Let's continue on. So I go back one. Oh, yeah. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. Okay, go next one. Verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Let's stop there. 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus used what was on hand and what was available. And these stone jars, as you see, were made for the, made for the Jewish rites of purification. And so they would use these as an elaborate system for washing their hands and dishes, all in an attempt to not be unclean. These Jews at this moment were under Old Covenant, Old Mosaic Law, Old Testament, Ten Commandments, all those types of things. They were under that. And so they would eat or not eat to remain clean. They would interact with someone or not interact to remain clean. And if they needed to get clean, they had this ritual thing to get clean. And it wasn't just like, okay, I got sweaty or dirty. It was a, a means to impute moral holiness on the guests. And so when the guests would arrive at this wedding ceremony, they'd be like, okay, you're unclean. Not just physically, but you are unclean in the spiritual. We have this six-stage program <laughs> to get you clean. Here's water from this jar. Here's water from this jar. Scrub, 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 scrub. You're good. You're good to go. Now you are clean in the eyes of God. Now you are holy. You may enter now. I find that it's so interesting 
that even in their, their practices, they are doing these man-made attempts to be holy in front of God. Even down to there is six water jars. Six is the number of man in scripture. Like, it gets so in-depth. And Jesus begins to use those water jars that were used as this old covenant in old methods to become clean. Verse 7. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. Continue on. Let's do verse 7 and then let's do 8. And he said to them, now draw some of it out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Under, under the direction of Jesus, the servants came into a unique position for blessing. Think about it. Jesus very well and could have easily made wine out of anything and used any container or just made stuff magically appear, right? He could have made the containers. He could have filled up all the empty bottles that were probably scattered throughout the property, all of them just refilled. But he chose to have servants be a part of the blessing. He chose. Jesus could have done it himself, but he wanted to share the work, work with their faith and their obedience, and to share the blessing with them. The servants, being the most lowly probably at that party, of no honor, of no nothing, they're just here, became a part of a miracle. Fill it to the brim. Jesus said just to fill the containers, but the servants seemed to go above and beyond because they just didn't fill it halfway. It says they filled these six stone containers to the brim, to the max. If the servants were lazy and would have only filled the containers maybe halfway, they would have missed out on the measure of blessing to come. Their obedience to even to the max of being like, I don't know how much water he wants, but I want him to be so happy that is more than enough to the brim. As the miracle began to unfold, that equated more wine. Amen. <laughs> measure of obedience to Jesus, measure of blessing. Verse 9 to 11. Let's do that. When the master of the feast tasted the water that now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants knew because they were part of the miracle who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. But you have kept the good wine until now. What is really interesting is this master of the feast, in a moment that's recorded in scripture, he spoke prophetically of what was happening in the moment. You've kept the best for now. There's this thing that happens with this story as you dive into it. And it's not just a story about a party and, and Jesus turning water into wine. But it's a story of contrasting of two things. Old covenant and new covenant. Old covenant being 
the old way that the Jewish people did it under the law of Moses that was set up after they left Egypt. Okay? Old covenant. And that old covenant was exclusively ruled by one thing, the law, the Ten Commandments. And the law was only to do one thing in your life, was to reveal your sin. Now, something happened with the person of Jesus. It says that he fulfilled that law. It says that he fulfilled everything, and he brought us into new covenant. He was the fulfillment of all these things, and now new covenant. And the new covenant isn't a one of law, but it's one of grace. In the old covenant, they would have to kill things to redeem their, and spill blood to redeem their sins. Now Jesus spilled his blood to pay for all. Where it would bring judgment, Jesus brings grace. Where there was death in that old law, Jesus brought life. So even right now to this day, you are a recipient of the new covenant. And when the guy, the master of the party, was so just weirded out of why they would say the good wine to now, it's because it was a prophetic thing that this old way, this old tired of system, man, the best is yet to come in Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? Save the best till now. We are not under the old covenant of law, but we are under the new covenants of grace. Wow. In scripture, with this new covenant, we see two primary figures interact with water in really, really interesting ways. <clears throat> the Jewish people would know this too, this story well. The first one we see is in Exodus. Moses is sent into Egypt to begin to convince Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. And the Israelites were held in by slavery. Pharaoh rejected that. And so the seven plagues begin to roll out into Egypt. The first plague was this, which is really interesting. He touched his staff in the water. And the water turned to blood. The river turned to blood. And it said every container in Egypt turned to blood. Interesting. Old covenant required blood. Now we have another figure in scripture, the primary figure, Jesus. Now he speaks to water and something else happens. It doesn't turn to blood this time. It turns to wine. Because you and me are under the new covenant. And this story that just seemed like just a random story is this illustration of the new covenant in the wine that Jesus is bringing into everything. Do you remember what wine means? Joy. The new covenant and joy that is in Jesus. It isn't about the blood and the death. It isn't about that. Jesus paid it all. That's what that means. That means at this point in time, the water isn't going to turn to blood. It's going to turn into wine. And it's going to do that over and over and over again. Because there's joy and joy abundantly in the new covenant. Isn't that awesome? Man, I love the Bible. I love it that even in the passage, 
we see the new covenant even begin to be played out. The servants. Can you go back to when Mary talks to him? I think it's like verse 3, somewhere around there. Mary tells the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. Do whatever he tells you to do. And then, under the direction of Jesus, through faith and obedience, they follow his instruction. And then what happens? The supernatural happens. We see the outplay of the new covenant, even in this little story about water and wine. We see that the new currency in the new covenant isn't the blood of an oxen or a blood of a dove, but it's your faith and your obedience in Jesus. And in that new covenant, it is not dead religion, but it's alive. And in that new covenant, your currency of faith and obedience leads to one thing when you're with Jesus, the supernatural. And it's this beautiful thing about the new covenant. And we see it even in the servants. The ones that were forgotten at the party. The ones that would probably get, you know, take my bottle. Take this plate of food. Clean up that mess. The most lowly were the ones with obedience and faith in Jesus in that moment. To be a part of something supernatural. Water into wine. Blood, now into grace. We are to operate and live under this new covenant of God. Partnering with him in faith and obedience to perform the supernatural. The continued work of the new covenant.